We're taking a closer look at the stocks some of you have been buying. Motley Fool Money starts now. Chris Hill joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you, Chris. I'm excited to be here as always. Let's start with Delta Airlines, shall we? Delta posted a bigger loss in the first quarter than was expected. CEO Ed Bastian, next month is his seven year anniversary in the corner office at Delta Airlines. And I'm going to take him at his word when he says he is not worried about the potential for lower consumer spending. Um, he said in an interview that air travel is something that the consumer is prioritizing. They may be pulling back in other areas, but I don't see it in our credit card data and I don't see it in our bookings. And I believe him, but I wonder if <laughs> I, I can't help but notice the uh, the tense he's using there. It's a present tense. I don't see it. I wonder if six months from now he's going to be seeing it because I don't know, Asit. It really seems like in the background over the last six to eight months, one of the narratives for the overall economy has been consumer spending data credit card data going up, uh, stuff that we're seeing in the housing market, in, in auto loans, that sort of thing. Um, go in any direction you want, whether you want to start with Delta's actual numbers or how the CEO is feeling at this moment. It's interesting, Chris. In some ways, he's right. Like Near term, Delta is seeing great advance bookings for the summer. Business travel is coming back. They're seeing more demand for their premium products, so first class. They're doing well on their affinity revenue, so revenue that comes in from uh, credit cards and such, loyalty as well. But, you know, I would be talking up nice demand that I see as well, because the problem that Delta has, which all airlines face, are stubbornly high costs. On the fuel side, fuel is up uh, double digits over last year. On the labor side, Delta and its peers in the legacy airline industry have been negotiating with uh, pilots and other union workers. I think Delta is going to spend some $7 billion bucks in cumulative costs over the next four to five years uh, to adequately compensate the, their pilots per agreement. If you're looking at those kinds of cost hurdles, you probably want to be mired in the present where you see some lift on the revenue side, because if that lift doesn't materialize, if the caution that I hear in your voice materializes, then they've got some further losses on their books in the quarters ahead. And I will point out here that Delta is still sticking to uh, fairly nice projections, both on the top and bottom line, you know, projecting great top line growth and better operating margin as the year progresses. And I think that's why we're seeing the stock you know, basically flat, maybe down at one point it was down half a percent or something like that. I mean, the first quarter numbers weren't great. And yet, to your point, the optimism for the near term, I think that's part of what is keeping the stock afloat at the moment. Sure. When you think about uh, this quarter in terms of, I don't know, airline metrics, total revenue per available seat mile, 
This metric was up 16% against the prior quarter. They are seeing that capacity is getting used up. Very important metrics that you want to try to evaluate any kind of business that has such high fixed costs. So on that side, they they look fairly healthy. And this is the only thing that's keeping the stock from being down, I think, seven to ten percent today, given the fact that with all this revenue lift, they still couldn't produce a profit. The Delta was still on a gap basis, negative for the quarter, although I will say their loss is much improved over the prior quarter as business conditions in the economy have picked up. If we go into a recession, though, we will see those same metrics start to move the other way. Capacity will move from being utilized to being underutilized if that all-important consumer element begins to soften. And I do agree with Ed Bastian that the business consumer is important to this story. They see corporate travel coming back, but we need everything to be working at once. We need a strong consumer. We need strong business travel. We need uh, fuel prices to decline. And we need those other costs that aren't wage-related to be managed pretty well for Delta to hit the kinds of numbers it's talking about for this year and for the airline industry as a whole to uh, have a positive year. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy released his second annual letter to shareholders. I haven't gone through it point by point, but what I've seen from the reporting on the letter doesn't surprise me in the sense that Jassy sounds like he's being very clear-eyed about how challenging the past year has been for this business. The past year was difficult for Amazon to absorb on so many fronts. They had a hangover from all their COVID business. In the space of two years, they doubled their entire logistics footprint. At the same time, once interest rates and inflation spiked, customers came to Amazon in their Amazon Web Services unit and said, we want to spend less on computing and storage because we have to manage our costs. And Amazon, I think rightly so, has agreed with enterprise customers, yeah, we'll help you back off and dial those costs down. Now, that's not good for Amazon Web Services' growth trajectory, and it's not good for the margins at Amazon Web Services. Uh, thirdly, you had in their, the other parts of the business so many places that it just didn't make sense to have law centers, burdens of high cost. So, Jassy started trimming. I mean, they've trimmed thousands of employees. We never like to talk about layoffs in, in any company that we tend to invest in or, or recommend for our members at The Motley Fool, but it's a reality of business. Massive layoffs and, and the shuttering of, of whole business lines and pairing back on once promising parts of the business. But I want to just read one or two points from the letter that, that made sense to me. Jassy said, over the last several months, we took a deep look across the company, business by business, invention by invention, and asked ourselves whether we had conviction about each initiative's long-term potential to drive enough revenue, operating income, free cash flow, and return on invested capital. In some cases, it led to us shuttering certain businesses. I like this because it crystallized what we've been seeing, what we've been reading in the tea leaves over the last three quarters. It was sort of a very honest expression of wanting to operate in a more disciplined fashion. Now, I personally read the letter from the middle up. I jumped to the section where Jassy talks about Amazon Web Services, because I think that's the true story here. I think what Jassy is really saying is, look, this part of our business is going to be slow until at least 2024. We're not going to be able to rely on our cash cow. 
And so I've taken the knife to parts of our businesses business that maybe we should have looked at several quarters ago, and we're not going to be as reliant on Amazon Web Services for our operating margin and our free cash flow. I, I sort of read the letter backward. You don't have to read it that way. There's plenty in here that's fun to read. The advertising revenues are our bright spot. They haven't given up on the grocery business. But this is a complex business. Chris, it strikes me that uh, more and more that Jassy was a, a great person to put in this seat, just watching how he's performed. What do you think? I mean, he's two years in. I've summed up the letter. What were your thoughts on Jassy? I, I, he was clearly the right person for the job. And um, I talked to Brad Stone from Bloomberg recently on the show, I mean, and we talked about Jassy and Bezos. And, and Brad Stone, as much as anyone in business media, Bradstone has studied Amazon and Bezos as closely, if not more closely, than anyone out there. So I, I take Brad at his word when he's like, "No, Jassy's Jassy's the guy. Bezos is not going to pull a Bob Iger. He's not going to pull a Howard Schultz and come back." But I think that you know one of the things that Jassy has picked up in his years of working at Amazon and working closely with Bezos. Is I I think a pretty deft ability to speak plainly about challenges, and it's one of the things I appreciate about him as a CEO and this letter. You know, speaking very, you know, he's not being. I mean, come on, like at some point, if you're an investor, you know when a CEO is trying to, you know. <laughs> To pull a fat swan, or or just try to like snow you with rhetoric, and it's like, come on, you know. So it would have been very much out of character if this was, you know, him whistling past the graveyard. Like everything's great, actually. It's like, no, come on. We all know, we all know there are challenges, but I also appreciate the fact that you know, and this is this is the thing Bezos was always good at. I thought of sort of speaking to questions that are lingering about the business that may not be at the forefront. An example of that in the letter from me is him talking about the investments that they will continue to make as a business, when he cites 2008 being a challenging time, not just for Amazon, but for the U.S. economy, and saying, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, hey, if we had stopped investing in AWS in 2008, as I'm sure some people were saying they should do, just as a way to sort of pull an economic lever within the business, like, hey, let's dial this back a little bit. If we had stopped investing in AWS in 2008, we would not be where we are today. And um, and so I I think that's you know it's it's also a way for him to essentially play a little bit of offense with this letter. Yeah, I felt so too. Those are really great points. I mean, the last thing that I wanted to point out, because I know not everyone who's listening is going to take the time to read it, something along these lines that occurred to me is just plain speaking and giving the investor perspective was his brief conversation on their fulfillment network, the one I mentioned, the logistics network, which took so long to build. Two points there. He said, one, it's going to be easier to manage this as more of a regional operation versus this big national operation. We can drive some more efficiencies. And two, now's the time to optimize. We moved so fast that we really didn't wring all the efficiencies that we could have out of the system. So we're sort of out of building phase. Now comes that profit optimization phase. And I think that could be a powerful contributor to their profits. And again, I appreciated sort of the clarity and directness that was there throughout this letter. Alsa Charma, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Same here. Thanks so much, Chris. 
recently posed two questions on Facebook and Twitter. What's a stock you've bought recently, and why did you buy it? Jason Moser and Ricky Mulvey dug through some of the responses to discover companies with moats, Peter Lynch-style investing, and one person who decided to short a teddy bear company. We asked you on Twitter in the Motley Fool Podcast Facebook group, what's a stock you recently bought and why? Joining us now to break some of them down is Jason Moser. Credit where credit is due. This is not our, our idea. This is a segment that you and Matt Frankel did on Industry Focus. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I mean, this is uh, this is something that we we did on the Industry Focus Financial Show for for uh, several episodes through the years, and you know, it started out as just like a one-off. Maybe maybe we'd get a couple of responses, and then we saw very quickly that people were very excited to tell us about their ideas. And, and honestly, it makes sense. I mean, I, I get excited to tell people about my ideas, so it, it seems like it works both ways. And as as time went on, we just we kept on getting so many great responses. I mean, more than we could handle. And so I'm I'm thrilled that we're able to do this today. Thanks. Let's get started with it. I think there's a few buckets that the responses fell into. We're not going to get to all of them. But in the financials bucket, there was a lot, a lot of love for, for Charles Schwab at Cunning Project on Twitter. Quote, solid business across the board with a small percentage of risky exposure, needlessly punished for the sins of others in the sector. Uh, Vince on Facebook also wrote us, Charles Schwab beaten down with all the banks, even though number one, they're not a bank per se. Number two, they have actually served as a safe haven for depositors fleeing regional banks. And three, they're not exposed to a high percentage of uninsured deposits. Give them a grade. What do you, what do you think of that reasoning? Yeah, I like this one. You know, I mean, for me, the first thing that came to mind. This is kind of like a baby being thrown out with a bathwater, right? I mean, and we see this often when we see you know some sort of crisis in the market in whatever whatever sector it may be. And in this case, sometimes investors will shoot first and aim second, right? And that's kind of what happened here, I believe. When you look at it, something like a Schwab. I mean, this a hundred. It's a one hundred billion dollar. Company, right? I mean, I think it was down 35% year to date or something like that, maybe maybe a week or so ago. And I, I agree, honestly, with everything that was said there. I mean, in many cases, Schwab has tremendous exposure to, to personal banking, right? We have retirement accounts that run through Schwab. Schwab acquired TD Ameritrade, so bringing in all of those account holders uh, to you know under the Schwab umbrella. I mean, there's just a lot of reasons to like Schwab, and I think you know our listener there listed those off. And I'll encourage folks to you know on March 30th, uh, our episode of Motley Fool Money on on March 30th, Matt Franklin and I actually spoke to this, right? Matt spoke a little bit about Schwab, uh, why he was excited about that opportunity as well. So, so for folks who, who maybe missed that episode, I would encourage you to check that episode uh, out from March 30th, and you can listen a little bit more to, to our conversation there. But in a nutshell, um, I mean, it, it, when you're looking at something like a Schwab, and I was asking Matt, you know, beyond just Schwab, right? Investing in this sector, what were some of the things? If folks are interested in banks, what should they be looking out for? And I mean, the obvious answer, right? Look for diversification, right? Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. And for folks who are interested in banks, maybe regional banks particularly, maybe an ETF would be a good a good uh, a way to to get some exposure there. But some of the things to look for in regard to banks, if you're interested in investing in banks, in looking for opportunities. Matt was talking about looking for 
a discount to book value, right? Take that with a grain of salt, of course. Um, but understanding a bank's loan growth, uh, looking at inflows versus outflows, right? What are depositors doing? And I think that was one of the things we saw, sort of writ large, was so many depositors fleeing those smaller regional banks uh, in favor of their larger brethren because they felt more protected in that regard. And that, you know, sometimes that that is. Uh, you know, not necessarily something you have to worry about, right? Because of that insurance uh, dynamic that does exist. Um, and then finally, he mentioned, and I thought this was a good one: look for their exposure to personal banking versus business banking. And and the reason why, right? The idea here is that people, we are less likely as people to switch banks, right? It's a hassle. We've got. Everything automatically coming out nowadays. I mean, if you want to switch banks, there's a real that's a real process. Businesses are going to be more inclined to do that, right? If it's something that will ultimately help their bottom line. So I thought that was another another uh, thing he he, uh, he said to look at. I thought I thought was a good good tip. There is know their exposure um, between business banking and personal banking, and that could give you some ideas as, as far as opportunities in the space. Might, might add commercial real estate uh, in there. Something to keep uh, an eye yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think with Charles Schwab, yeah, the, the the bear case was that they weren't going to be able to lot of pay much of a return on cash deposits. Therefore, people would pull their money out and, and move it to somewhere where they could get a higher return. That's a very yeah. different reasoning for a, a, an alleged bank run. And, and to your point, yeah, moving your money is a pain in the butt, and people don't act as, as rational economic <laughs> actors. Yep. Let's move on to uh, stocks for the long term. I, I liked this from at always underscore invest on Twitter about Boston Omaha writing added to existing holding. I feel very ignored by the market due to size and nature of the businesses within it, but with large long term upside for a long term investor. A couple key things I liked in there. First of which was that uh, it was a stock that uh, this this person had already owned. Yeah, yeah. Well, oftentimes I think what is it? Peter Lynch said, "Oftentimes the best stock to buy is one that you already own." Yeah, I certainly see that. I've certainly seen that play out in, in my investing life as, as I've built up my portfolio. And in this case, I, I agree. I think Boston Omaha, I think, flies under the radar for a lot of investors because it's such a small company. We're talking about sub one billion dollar market cap, and you know these great businesses all start out as small businesses and then they grow over time and i think uh, with boston omaha it's it's such a it's such an interesting sort of collection of businesses right you've got an outdoor billboard advertising business you've got a surety insurance side of the business you've got a broadband side of the business you've got an investment side of the business so it, and I think one of the qualities of this company that a lot of folks really, really enjoy is there are some similarities to something like a Berkshire Hathaway or or even a Markel Insurance to a degree. Uh, both companies we're big fans of here at the Fool, and and I, there is also a tie. Um, I think it's it's Warren Buffett's nephew, I believe, is uh, one of the one of the leaders of of this company, and so it's one that a lot of folks here like, and I think it's a fascinating business as well. And um, yeah, I tend to agree. It, it's it's nice to be able to add. To uh, some of your higher conviction positions, and, and this one seems like uh, it, it is ignored, probably due to its size and just interesting collection of, of, of business lines. Also, I think that the leadership of Boston Omaha tries to fly under the radar. They don't do yeah. a ton of media. They don't do earnings calls. So it's it's perhaps not only market inflicted. Also, how much how much credit do you get for being the nephew? I mean, <laughs> what what about cousin, second cousin, third third cousin twice removed? Brand is a very powerful thing, and whenever you see that name, sometimes that all that's all it takes for some people. <laughs> as long as we can use the stock photo. Speaking of Peter Lynch that you mentioned earlier, there are a couple Peter Lynch-ish types of investments. Yeah. At Brandon West thirty eight wrote us that he bought Nike 
a leader in athletic apparel that is 20% off its recent high. For a dad who recently started team sports with my boys, I see Nike products everywhere and feel very comfortable holding this company for the long term. Not looking for those big endorsements, looking for the youth sports. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the endorsements are essentially advertising, right? I mean, you, you see more and more athletes uh, sporting that Nike brand, and, and, and it is just a very resilient business with a very strong brand. I mean, it's, it's always, you know, brands ebb and flow, right? They, they witness their challenges and they capitalize on their opportunities, and Nike's no exception there either. But I mean, my kids own Nike shares, they've owned them for a long, long time. Um, and, and one of the reasons is because it's one of those stocks that they can own uh, indefinitely in, in, in our minds. And um, it's, it's through the years, they've just done a tremendous job of growing that presence. It is a global business. Tremendous distribution, and and again, like you said, with the athletes that are sporting that brand, I mean that is just that is very powerful advertising that resonates with the consumers. The next one I found meaningful. It came from us from at Volfan seventy nine about Outset Medical, writing us. Saw my mother in law suffer from kidney failure for two years before passing last year. Here, remote home made three trips to the dialysis center a major issue. Home dialysis would have been a huge help and even possibly allowed her to travel, which was a passion of hers. Yeah, I mean, that's powerful, right? I mean, so sorry for your loss, of course. And by the same token, I mean, you are, you're sort of employing that Peter Lynch mentality of, of invest in what you know. You're, you're basing this on, on something that you've experienced. Um, and in, in this case, it was obviously a very powerful experience. And, you know, I'm a fan of Outset Medical, Ricky. I mean, I've, I've pitched it on the show before. I own the shares myself. I've recommended it my services. And for a lot of those reasons uh, that were just stated, I mean, this is uh, dialysis historically has been. Uh, a hurdle, a challenge. It's it's something that's needed, right? It's it's not optional, and and it's something that a lot of folks here in the United States alone require. And and the the barriers to deal with that they've just been so difficult. And then along comes something like Outset Medical, which is utilizing technology in order to make it easier, in order to help sort of scale healthcare. I mean, that's one of the things I like about a lot of these healthcare companies that are. Building on technology is they're really solving a problem in scaling healthcare, making effective healthcare more available to more people. I'm very hopeful that Outset works out. I'm optimistic that it will, um, and, and, it, and it sounds like uh, probably an opportunistic purchase in this case. Also, love to see some moats in the thesis. Uh, at Neil and Rockville wrote us finally made a move on ASMLF. Be careful, gotta buy the ASMLF been hearing and watching its growth, and it has a true moat to boot. With new chip plants being built in the U.S., you got to believe it will be needed more than ever. Yes, well, I mean, lithography, which is what ASML does, a very specialized and expensive process. The machines that they sell are $300 million plus. Um, this, this EUV, the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, what they specialize in, we know the tailwinds in the chip space. Uh, they do have a bit of a monopoly on much of this equipment, big barriers to entry, and not only the tech capability here, but the capital requirements as well. Um, and again, understanding that the tailwinds and semiconductors, this seems like a pretty sensible one. Yeah, ASML builds the machines that builds the machines to build the chips. Yeah, and it it takes some some incredible engineering that even if you just even if you just copied and pasted what they were doing, you couldn't replicate what they're doing because it's such a highly specialized knowledge. I think that's spot on. 
And when we, uh, as, as we're wrapping up, you know, uh, Jason, when you ask people on Twitter what they're thinking, you don't always get the answers you expect. <laughs> and uh, we, we did get some folks who did not share stock purchases with us. In fact, they, sh they shared with us stocks they sold. At Ryan Tweets, I shorted Build-A-Bear and lost. How is that company doing so well these last few years? First of all, I'm, I'm going to lead in with one statistic, Jason. Build-A-Bear is trading at like eight times earnings. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not surprising to me. I can just tell you, as a parent, having 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 gone through the Build a Bear experience uh, many many years ago, it it's got its puts and its takes. I mean, it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful quick solution when you want to throw your kid a birthday party, but you very very quickly realize you only need so many teddy bears in your house. It's a really great experience for little kids' birthday parties, and it's a great way to keep your kid entertained for a while. I think its market opportunity is capped. Um, it is it is one of those things that requires a physical presence, so to speak. Right, you're going to a mall in most cases to do it. I'm not not sure what the price was when you shorted this company, but as of today, it's a $350 million market cap, and shares are up like almost 1,400% over the last three years. So, it's coming off a very low base. I mean, the financials of this business are still not terribly encouraging. So, I understand why you shorted it, but I think this is just a good lesson in that, I, you know, listen, I don't short stocks, Ricky. It's just not my style. If I don't like it, I just take a pass and don't buy it. Um, so, so, you know, with your short thesis, you can be 100% right, and the market can still stick it to you. So, hopefully, lesson learned. It's also, it's also tough shorting small caps where the... Yeah. Uh, you get the volatility and the upside can be more upsidey yep based on what a few buyers are doing yep but i don't want to end there i mean i mean what were your what were your broad scale takeaways from from the responses you saw i mean i was i was pretty impressed most most of them i read i was like yeah that that makes sense yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love this exercise because it forces you to think, why am i buying this, right? I mean, and there are a lot of reasons to buy something and in most cases, it's personal. I mean, I think that is one of the bigger takeaways. Is just investing is a very personal exercise, right? Some ideas resonate more with some folks than others, and I think it just goes to show there are a lot of ways to get it done. And so that's always worth remembering. There is a ton of information out there. There are a ton of opportunities out there. You're going to probably take a pass on most ideas, but it's always worth remembering. I think investing is a very personal exercise, and and it's it's always worth remembering that you just learn as you go along and you incorporate what matters most to you as you build your investing philosophy. Jason Moser, appreciate your time as always. Thank you. Got a stock that you've purchased recently? Tell us about it. Drop an email to podcasts at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.